The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's, and I'm delighted to introduce Dina Shacker, partner of Lux Capital and a vocal advocate for diversity and inclusion for founders and funders, for what I know will be a fascinating discussion on DNI in the metaverse. Dina, over to you. Thank you so much, Lauren, and good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be here and to introduce two incredible women with whom we are going to have a delightful and interesting conversation about how to build an inclusive metaverse as this new wave of technology takes on. Uh, so without further ado, allow me to introduce two close friends of mine, Britt Morin, who is a founding partner at Offline Ventures, a venture capital fund that seeks to invest and invent new technologies that make our offline lives better. Britt is also the founder and CEO of Brit & Co. and Selfmade, which aims to help women learn everything from entrepreneurship to the creative arts. And in addition to all of this, Britt co-founded an organization called BFF, a Web3 community helping women and non-binary people get educated, connected, and financially rewarded in crypto. And I'm so proud to be a founding member of BFF along with Britt and her co-founder, Jamie. And Stacey Olivares, who is an Aspen Finance Fellow with me. She is a board director, chief investment officer, and advisor to founders, funders, and policymakers on everything from financial security to decentralized finance, aka DeFi, one of the many acronyms and abbreviations we'll talk about today, in addition to ESG and DEI. Stacy advances economic progress and equity through leadership and innovation in finance, technology, policy, and media. And she's also authored a children's book on blockchain, which we'll talk more about. So the topic of our discussion today is how we can build Web3 while being inclusive and centralizing diverse communities as creators, as economic recipients of the wealth to be created, uh, and as foundational members of this emerging community. So I want to start with some definitions. A lot of these terms seem new to a lot of people. So let's start by asking both you, Britt and Stacy, what exactly is Web3? and the metaverse? And are these terms actually synonymous? Britt. Um, I actually uh, do not believe the terms are synonymous. I believe the, the metaverse is uh, a digital world that will largely play itself out through virtual reality and already is. Um, you could also argue that we're in the metaverse already because most of us live our lives on Zoom every day um, <laughs> and staring at a screen. Uh, so the metaverse will just become a little bit more tactile over the next few years. For Web3, I, that's, that's the name, the word, the category I'm most excited about because to me, this is about the third chapter of the internet. And it's about giving power back to the people, back to the consumers and the users by letting them own the different things that they are 
taking part of the communities that they're in, the things they're purchasing. They can own and sell whenever they want to and use it to represent their identity. And the blockchain and crypto is all part of that. The metaverse is part of that. But Web3 is the umbrella that encapsulates it all. Very well said, Britt. Thank you. Stacey, I know you've spent many years talking about these uh, these these words and these thoughts before they became more mainstream. Tell us what you think about the nomenclature. Well, I agree with what Britt says, and I'll expand upon it a bit for our audience. Web one was the original ability to research on the Internet. So think of Netscape as a navigator back in the day, late 90s, well, I would say early to late 90s. And then we had the ability to create content, especially around 2008. So think of social media, but we don't own our content on social media on the platforms like Instagram and Facebook. So it's centralized and the content creators don't retain that full value of ownership. With Web3, there's the ability for content creators to engage in culture and own what they create and be able to transfer that value and retain the value along that chain. So it's going to create the ability for content creators to create wealth and to capitalize communities. I love that. So lesson number one, you are already in the metaverse if you're listening and tuning into this. Um, and this idea of ownership is a really interesting one. So I want to ground the conversation we're having in some data. Uh, this is something I think about a lot, as I know do both of you, the, the numbers of women and underrepresented communities in venture and also uh, venture-backed companies. We know that in 2021, the number of dollars, the percentage of dollars, I should say, that went into companies founded by all women teams was only 2%, the lowest number since 2016. And interestingly, that number does go up to 15.6% if you account for a male co-founder. Now, with the recent, ex recent explosion of interest in Web3, which is so fundamentally grounded in this notion, Stacey, of ownership and also of, of creating, there is perhaps an opportunity to get more women and people of color in, in these communities from, uh, from day one or day zero. I think what we've seen, though, is unfortunately that has not been the case today. Britt, I'd like to, to ask you, you know, I remember you, you hosted an event years ago on women in crypto, um, which at least was the first I had seen really focused on that. And I think a lot of women probably ended up making a lot of money, thanks to your great advice back then. But you recently launched BFF with Jamie Schmidt. Tell us a bit more about what led you to decide to create this organization and how you think a community like this will help change some of that data moving forward. Absolutely. So yeah, as Dina mentioned, I've been, you know, in and around the crypto world since 2012. In 2017, there was another kind of peak of Bitcoin, you know, which was the big, the big buzzword of the day. And um, that was really, you know, the primary currency that most crypto buyers were holding. At the time, it was, you know, maybe five or six thousand dollars for a Bitcoin and um, only four percent of cryptocurrency owners were female. And it blew my mind because here I was watching all these men make a gazillion dollars on Bitcoin and crypto and women weren't and they, and they, because they didn't even understand how do you even buy this stuff? Why would I buy it? Um, fast forward 
five years and, and we threw this big summit and, you know, five years ago, 20,000 women showed up, but we're now at like 15 to 20% of uh, cryptocurrency owners being female, which is definitely an improvement. Don't get me wrong, but it's definitely not parody. And if we are literally building the, the building blocks of what the next chapter of the internet will hold, shouldn't we have parity and equality from all voices, male, female, people of color, non-binary, to ensure that we're going to build that foundation the proper way this time around. So that's where BFF came from. Um, I Some other stats that might be interesting to everyone listening right now, only 6% of all women have even bought crypto um, or an NFT or anything like that as of today. Um, only 5% of NFT creators are female and only 4% of Web3 crypto entrepreneurs are female, all of which have um, at least one male co-founder as of the end of 2021, as reported by The Street. So um, not optimal numbers. And for me, those are just forcing functions to continue to do what we're doing with BFF and to join you on, you know, platforms like these, which can help educate more people out there as to why we need more diversity in the space. Amazing. Thank you so much, Brett. I also want to remind the, the audience to start sending your questions in. We're going to reserve some time for Q&A at the end of the conversation. So keep those questions coming. Um, Britt, you, you touched on this idea of, of, of some of these terms and, and the underpinning um, currency even really being opaque and, and information being somewhat obfuscated and hard to understand. And so a lot of people feel, oh, I can't even go there. Like, what does this mean? Um, at, at Lux, we invest in deep tech companies all the time. And one of my partners often says, you know, how would you explain this to my, you know, eight-year-old or nine-year-old uh, child? And I find that a really good rubric for for, uh, you know, thinking about complex topics. So on that note, Stacy, you literally did this. You wrote a, a children's book, probably even aimed at a younger audience than eight or nine to explain the blockchain. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit more about why it's important or why you think it's important to start um, educating women and communities of color early on on financial literacy and perhaps lessons from your longtime advocacy more broadly in finance and how that can be applied to to Web3? Sure. So when I think about Web3 and inclusivity, it's really about engagement and communicating in culture. And there are a few ways to do that. So one of the companies I advise is called Sumo Wealth, and we've built a Sumoverse. So in the Latino community, which happens to be about half of California's population and the fastest growing population in the U.S., there's a major disconnect with financial services and other types of industries. And in the Sumoverse, you can go anywhere within it and start to engage. So you can start to buy crypto, for example, you can have your NFT. That's the part we're building out. We had a Super Bowl event too, where people could go and get financial advice. Again, all virtual, but then that we had participants from local football teams come. I am the money madrina, meaning the money godmother who can help give advice, but it takes away the shame that many people have around money and it makes it accessible and fun. Um, when it comes to younger generations, I think oftentimes we see kids playing Roblox or we see them playing Minecraft. There are ways to engage youth 
I mean, that's fun. And so there's a company called Encantos that makes an NFT called Canticos. They're these little chickies. And these little chickies represent um, culture and community. And Encantos teaches it, kids in Spanish. What that does is bring in a new cohort of kids to learn about NFTs. And with a lot of immigrant communities, it's the kids who are guiding the parents and the grandparents. And there's an exponential effect there. So it becomes almost viral with bringing in the digital community and also the physical community. And I think as we see more adoption early on, particularly with children and Gen Z, this is going to explode. Absolutely, Stacey. And on that note, Britt, you know, when we launched, when we launched uh, BFF, there were uh, many familiar faces there um, at the launch event, uh, including some celebrities. I felt pretty cool being on a Zoom with Gwyneth Paltrow and Mila Kunis. Uh, but I'd love to hear more about your perspective on how we can engage the world outside of tech, whether it's Hollywood um, or, uh, you know, or the, or the art world in order to really make it inclusive, not just in the geographies where we have a proliferation of tech uh, companies. Now, yeah, no, we, we actually started BFF with about 50 founding members as you are one. Thank you, Dina. Um, and I purposefully thought about the mosaic of these women and non-binary people based on their representation of not just, you know, ethnicity, but also um, experience and industry. And I think Web3 has the ability to catapult all industries mm -hmm. forward. If you are an author, um, your book, you know, can be on the blockchain. Every time someone buys your book, you can, you know, they can join your community. You always get royalties on, like, there's so many different cool things about being an author or an artist or a, you know, a music artist, a visual artist, a poet that are relevant in this world. Um, starting a company, entrepreneurship. Um, I'm, I'm talking to a bunch of Web2, you know, public company founders about how to pivot their mm -hmm. massive e-commerce marketplaces or subscription services into Web3 by giving, you know, all of their consumers the ability to get rewarded every time they're buying. Um, for obviously venture capitalists, it's an obvious area to, to invest. And so it really touches upon every type of industry, every type of person. And um, and I think that I, I wanted to bring in celebrities to make sure that this wasn't just a Silicon Valley thing, that this was something that you know, the mainstream was starting to get excited about because at the end of the day, we have to make this economy larger. You know, we're at like single digit percentages of the world in the U.S. even participating in here. And when more people participate, so more people open a crypto wallet and, you know, learn how to buy their first cryptocurrency or NFT or token, um, we are expanding and rising all boats for all creators, for all entrepreneurs and, and everyone else out there. And ultimately, you know, the reason why I, I started investing in this as part of offline is because we believe Web3 is a healthier Internet. I don't believe that this current Internet that we're all living in is is great for our brains. Um, I think that there are a variety of few companies that run most of the Internet. <laughs> um, and I'm excited to see the power shift back to the people and to see what happens when we all build it together. I think the world has been really hard the last few years. Um, and this is an opportunity to, to do something in communities 
digitally that we've never done before and to collaborate in ways that might bring us together as humanity. I know that sounds woo-woo, but I'm truly excited about what the future holds there. I love that. Uh, and there's a lot of room for optimism. Absolutely. You know, when we think about diversity in, in, in tech and venture and startups, I'm often reminded of um, my first year at Google. And when I joined, that was the year that Google released its numbers on diversity in computer science. It was the first major tech company to do so. And it was pretty darn bad. And it led to a, a massive effort, not only in, across the company, but I would say a, across the industry to increase the number of women and underrepresented communities who study computer science. And in order to do that, we did this massive undertaking uh, to try to identify where were the points of attrition? Where does it start? And that led to an understanding that some of these biases and self-perceptions can begin as early as 18 months of age, and they can continue in the context of computer science studies all the way through the postgraduate work. And so there are many, many opportunities for us to drive um, not only diversity, but inclusion, which is a, you know, often bucketed with diversity, but can mean something very different in the context of computer science. When it comes to Web3, are there particular points where you feel it is more important for us to drive diversity early on? Is it around the creation and the art of the NFTs? Is it around the consumer purchasing of, of currency? Is it more around potential businesses who can pivot to Web3? I'd love to hear, Stacey, what your thoughts are on where the opportunities are, not just broadly in Web3, but in particular to really drive diversity and inclusion early on. Well, Dean, I'm so glad you talked about uh, tech um, and, and the lack of diversity there. It takes me back to my days at Cal and coding in the basement of Evans, which is our math building um, at UC Berkeley. But when it comes to the metaverse, a lot of people don't realize that the fictional character who is the mother of the metaverse is Juanita Marquez, as featured in the book Snow Crash. She's a Chicana from UC Berkeley. And I think that is very valuable as a symbol to show women, particularly women of color, that we can create something like this. And then we can tell these stories. We are part of this. There's often this narrative that you can't be what you don't see. It's, it's challenging for sure. If we're going to change how the metaverse looks now and use that as a way to change the physical reality that in real life. I think it's really important to look at how we're investing in culture. So there's much talk right now from early stage investors about building out community in the metaverse, which is very important. If we want community that is robust, it's going to need to be diverse and dynamic. And we need to make sure for that to be authentic and uh, very innovative, that there needs to be some diversity there. So the way to do that is to allow access. So have things like airdrops um, of the different NFTs, for example, to groups that are getting into the space that are more diverse. Have earlier access, as I mentioned before, there's Summa Wealth, there's Encantos, there are many other groups. And also really look at how we're investing in this space. So making a concerted effort to invest with diverse and women founders. And as that starts to happen, we're going to see a power shift. So 
those who are typically the consumers, women are like 85% of the consumers in the United States are going to become the owners and then the investors. And then once we see that shift from consumer to owner to investor, we're going to see an exponential shift in investment in that space. I love that. Thank you, Stacey. Uh, I, I want to turn the conversation to one of our many acronyms uh, in Web3, which is NFT. So, Britt, um, first of all, can you define what NFT is and tell us a bit about what you've seen in terms of the, the composition of artists who have been creating NFTs, what those images have looked like if they're oriented a certain way, and how we can help drive that kind of creativity, which I know is something you, you've been a long time passionate uh, advocate for um, into the process of NFT creation. Totally. Uh, I love NFTs and I'm here to dispute the fact that they're just a JPEG that you can screenshot and save to your phone, um, as many people think, or that they're Ponzi schemes. Um, so NFT stands for non-fungible token. Um, the Barron's audience probably knows what fungible means, but uh, just in case, um, you know, when something is fungible, it could be traded for something of the same value. Um, but when it's non-fungible, it, it is a one of one. It is unique. You know, if um, I have $2 bills, one of them is signed by um, Joe Biden with his autograph <laughs> and another is just a dollar bill. The one with Joe's signature is probably going to be worth more if I ever try to resell it. Um, so, so NFTs are one of ones. Um, even if there's a collection of them, um, the one that you purchase is yours. Uh, it is uh, verified on the blockchain as yours. You are the owner. You are the only person who can ever sell it or trade it. Um, and this creates um, a massive new opportunity, like I said, not even just for artists who, of course, can sell their art. And then every time it gets resold by the consumer, take, you know, a small percentage of the sale forever, um, which you can imagine um, those royalties are really powerful for people in music that have been shut out of this world for a long time in film and in, in, in literally the art world, like museums um, and, and art galleries. Um, but also here's a funny tidbit about um, like Broadway, for instance, which I think is relevant for, for people to understand NFTs. So Hamilton versus Wicked. I'm sure you know about both of them. Um, very different business strategies. Uh, Hamilton actually would love to sell um, all of their tickets forever for $25 a ticket. The problem is right now they'll start the sale at $25 and then people buy it and take it to StubHub or a secondary market mm -hmm. and resell it for $500. Um, and Hamilton has no control over that. Um, uh, if, if they were making tickets as NFTs, they can force through the, the smart contract, you know, the code behind this NFT ticket that it is always $25 no matter who sells it. Um, and they can keep their prices aligned to the community they want to build. Um, conversely, Wicked doesn't have that strategy. They want to make the most money possible. Um, and so they say, you know what? You can sell it on the secondary markets, however which, much you want. But because it's an NFT and because we have, have coded this ticket, we will always get 10% of that transaction that we don't get on StubHub or in any of these places when they trade after we do the initial sale. And so you can imagine how that like creates um, perpetuity of royalties for Wicked time and time again as these tickets are being sold. And, and again, this is just one example, but this is why the NFTs are so valuable to the owner, but also valuable to the community holder. Because if you bought that first Wicked ticket 
and it was a hundred dollars. And some people now are selling wicked tickets for 10,000. You now just made $9,900 if you wanted to resell it. And, and that's a, a great financial win for you. So um, I'm really excited about the power of NFTs um, and how they will, will represent um, membership, um, ticketing, you know, if you have a certain number of NFTs in your wallet, maybe you unlock a VIP rewards program, you can get real life perks attached to the NFTs that you buy. It just, it runs the gamut and people are starting to get really creative with it right now. Well, uh, I think the, the moral here is we're not giving up our shot. Um, going back to Hamilton, I love that. <laughs> Um, and, you know, as we wrap, just to turn the conversation to the visual representation within NFTs, I think a lot of folks who maybe first heard of NFTs saw images of the Board Ape Yacht Club, um, you know, very more masculine oriented imagery. But I've been super optimistic and heartened to see not only uh, more inclusive imagery within NFTs, but even particular communities. I've, saw, I've seen some hijabi women NFTs. I've seen some Latina-focused NFTs. Um, just absolutely beautiful creators coming to the scene. So uh, very optimistic there. We are about um, hitting that five-minute mark, and I know there are a lot of questions that have come in. So I want to turn it back over to Lauren to uh, help us run through those questions, and um, and we'll answer those in the last five minutes we have. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Tina, and thanks to the audience for sending in lots of questions. We'll try to get to as many of them as possible. So David asks, a common Web3 criticism is that standard Web 2.0 services are more efficient in terms of processing power and speed to deliver than the same feature or function delivered on Web 3. How and when, if ever, will that reverse? I'm happy to, I'm happy to jump in on that. I, I mean, I think everyone has to realize that right now we are in the dial-up internet phase of Web3. Um, everything is taking longer. You know, the blockchain is a relatively new type of technology. And the fact that all of these transact, any transaction that happens on the blockchain gets verified, um, it does create time um, cost. However, um, there are in incredible new technologies like Solana, for instance, that can process a transaction even faster than Visa can process a credit card transaction by, I think, tenfold or more. Um, and so the speed of the technology is picking up really, really quickly. I'm really bullish about the fact that we are going to end up in a much better spot than Web2 with, with the speed of of literally the transactions, but also just the speed of building and the, um, the, the mainstream of this world because there's financial incentive to do so. Um, there's financial incentive from the people that are participating because they are now owners. There's also financial uh, incentive because tens of billions of dollars of venture capital are flooding into this category and more uh, people are building in the space. I personally know a lot of really successful Web 1 and Web 2 founders that have been on the bench for several years uh, thinking that the internet is dead and it's all boring, who are finally coming off the bench and back on the field, starting new companies. And I think there's just a reinvigoration at large about all that can be done here. So I would give it a couple of years for sure. Um, I don't think this is all going to happen in 2022. I think two to three years um, is when we'll start to see more of the mainstream impact of a lot that's happening today. Great. I agree. I just want to build on that. I completely agree. And within challenge lies opportunity. This is the investment stage. So right now we're investing in infrastructure 
Salon is great. There's the Phantom Wallet. It's not always perfect, but that is the opportunity for investors to come in at an early stage and build wealth and be part of building Web3. Great, thank you. So Victor asks, traditionally underserved communities have been culturally averse to investing in stocks, bonds, etc. How do we change the thought process on that uh, in addition to investing in crypto or the metaverse? I, I can start with that one. I think, you know, this sort of risk reward question is one that comes up a lot in the context of diversity in venture, in angel investing, in founding companies. I mean, we know that there are decades of, of, of research that show that women even only apply for jobs where they are exactly qualified for them, whereas men have no qualms applying for jobs if they're perhaps seven years underqualified for. I think that translates across the board in the context of any type of high risk, high reward opportunity. And that's obviously a big problem. It's a big problem for the future of wealth creation. To Britt's point, there's a proliferation of future wealth and future creation that comes. So it's not just about enabling those investors who happen to be underrepresented to make their own wealth, but we know that that means they will invest in future more uh, diversity and inclusion. So I think it's a challenge across the board um, it, for this asset class. Um, I don't know if would, Stacey want to add anything. Yeah, I would say that it's not so much an aversion as it is to historical inequity that is baked into the system. So there's been a lot of discrimination in financial markets, and that continues to this day. Women have been excluded. People of color have been excluded from financial markets. So it's only in recent times that markets have been open. And I think a lot of the communication regarding finance has been very negative toward people, especially for underrepresented communities. There's a lot of shame that's built in. We have an opportunity within Web3 to change that dynamic, for people to be seen in a different way, to see their communities, right? Because you can now buy land in the metaverse. But that's mm -hmm. why it's so important to invest in communicating in culture. Very well said. Trust. Trust. Is right. On a trustless system. <laughs> yes. I love it. So a question from Neil. How much will AI drive up participation in Web3 and the metaverse? Um, so personally, I think AI is not mutually exclusive for Web3 or Web2. Um, I think uh, there's so many different ways to use AI in every part of every business. Um, and I'm, you know, excited about its use for uh, participation in the metaverse. But um, I can't say that it's going to be strictly related to building out Web3 or the metaverse. Um, other than, you know, I think there's going to be a, a lot of ways that things are just automated um, through the blockchain using artificial intelligence that don't need as many manual and human interactions. Stacey or Dina, do you guys have comments on that? Yeah, I think there's an opportunity for some leapfrogging here um, in terms of the application of the, the AI infrastructure to, uh, to Web3. There have been some incredible companies that have been built applying AI ML on the kind of infrastructure layer to more traditional enterprise um, SaaS or fintech. Um, but you're dealing then with highly regulated, very uh, historically entrenched systems. Mm -hmm. So the ability to build in early, I think, is really exciting. Uh, and it's definitely in thesis for us at Lux. In fact, we just hired a new incredible woman who's focused on Web3 and in particular infrastructure, Grace Isford, um, one of the many women who are uh, diving in headfirst to, uh, to Web3 from an investor perspective. 
So Pedro asks, what are the current risks in the metaverse? And by the same token, what are the advantages from an investor perspective on these risks? Um, I think, right, as an investor, and, you know, you probably share this sentiment, uh, the risk is it's so early. And um, a lot of these companies are going to fail. There's so much hype around this industry right now. Um, a lot of, um, you know, people that do not have experience even building Web 2 products are jumping in to build Web 3 products. And so, you know, there's a lot of diligence that needs to happen. Uh, valuations are very frothy, way frothier than you're seeing across the board in any other category. Um, so I think about that a lot. Um, and, and you know, at, at the beginning of Web 2, I got, I got to participate in the early 2000s of, of the beginnings of Web 2. And, you know, um, I think at this point, we, we understand the themes that are going to be built. And now it's about, like, who do we think is going to build it the best, the fastest, um, with the right community and the right missions and values, and and how are we all aligning behind that? But um, over the next two years are going to be fun. Um, there are, like, many, for instance, um, you know, music streaming NFT platforms being launched right now. And as, a, and as an investor, you're like, which one's going to win out? You know, which one's going to get all the celebrities on there? Which one's going to get the consumers to come? Are people going to leave Spotify and actually come over? Is Spotify going to build this? You know, and, and so you have to, it's fun, but it's early. And um, again, the technology and the infrastructure still isn't there. Um, the majority of the population is not there. <laughs> so, um, so we have to sort of time the rocket to coincide with the moon the right way. And, and that'll happen in a couple of years from now. There's also a lot of regulatory risk. And so for the investors who are watching, I would caution them to, to be aware of the uncertainty. We don't know how NFTs are going to be treated, um, if they're going to be looked at as a security and or if there's going to be taxation. And if so, what that taxation framework is going to look like. So we're almost out of time, but I think maybe just one last question. This is from Anurelp, and he says the upcoming graduate class of students from various backgrounds and areas seems to be highly eager to step into Web3 uh, in an industry where the U.S. market plays a big role, given the employment constraints of international students studying in the U.S. How do you see talent amongst those minorities finding a spot in the field? I can start with that. I, um, I teach a class at Stanford Business School, and um, it, it's, it's actually a class on startups. And a number of students get together and start their own companies. It was pretty amazing to see how many were not only focusing on Web3, but were focusing on Web3 in particular within communities that had been marginalized or had not been really represented in different geographies, in the U.S. in different communities. It, there's clearly something going on among this emerging class of graduates where there is a lot of excitement there. And, you know, those of us that have been, been investing for a while have seen those kinds of trends with, with different, uh, you know, popular fields before. Uh, is it going to be different this time? Will it stick? I think a lot of us are really optimistic and hopeful. But to Britt's point, uh, because of the frothiness and because of, you know, massive prolifer proliferation of these types of companies, you know, it is unlikely that every single one will end up being, you know, the next uh, the ne next multi-billion dollar company. And so I think we'll we'll see a lot of creation early on and perhaps some consolidation. And the next two or three years, as Britt said, will indeed be very interesting. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. And thank you, Dina, 
Stacey and Britt, for your time today. Uh, we hope you listen to our next episode on Monday. Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren Rublin, and Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, will discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks for listening. Be well and enjoy the rest of your day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.